Well, we are well into the season of Lent, and we have been participating again this year in 40 Acts of Generosity. There's some great stories that we're already hearing, and we look forward to hearing more of those as time goes on. Um, but we're also following the curriculum for the uh, 40 Acts, and so we've had two teachings so far. First of all, we had uh, Brian here talk to us about humility, and then the following week we had Mike talking to us about wisdom. And this morning we come to the third topic, which is the topic of friendship. I have many of these things on the screen. If you were here, you could see them. However, with the bundle that you received with the link for today's talk, um, you will also have received a PDF. And so hopefully you will be able to look at that and follow through the teaching and refer to what I am talking about on your screen. Uh, the scripture passages in particular are all um, typed out on there for you so that you'll be able to uh, see where I'm going and uh, see how much more content there is before I can stop talking as you look towards the end. So we're talking this morning about friendship. And uh, there's a beautiful proverb that prompts all of this. And my goodness, if, if there was never a time um, more appropriate than this, um, it is from Proverbs 17, verse 17, that says this, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So today we're going to talk about friendship, and we're particularly going to be talking about friendship in the context of the coronavirus and what it means that we who are friends one of the other are kind of pulled apart. And we're not able to sit down side by side. We're not able to have a cup of coffee, maybe, or um, not able to put an arm around each other. But we want to count on what this verse tells us, that in fact, a friend loves at all times. This is one of those all times. And a brother or a sister is in fact born for adversity. Not only are they required to be faithful during adversity, but the proverb says that a person who is a true friend is literally born with the destiny of being our friend in adversity. So there is some adversity and there will be adversity. And so we want to count on one another. And today in particular, I would like to call on you to be the friend that is the faithful friend that loves at all times and also recognizes that she or he is in fact born for adversity. A couple of times a year, if not more, I get a phone call. And the phone call often comes to the church office from my friend Hugh. And so Bethany is getting familiar with the voice of Hugh. He used to call with a bogus pastoral need emergencies. He's done that for years and years. He would claim that he was on the fourth floor and he was going to jump unless I could give him helpful pastoral counsel. After a number of years, after my telling him that I had nothing to offer him and he should go ahead and jump, he has stopped doing that, but he continues to call. I'll tell you why he calls. Hugh calls to see that I'm all right. Hugh is a friend who has been there for me and for us since our children were born. Uh, Hugh and his wife Lois had their two girls just before we began raising our four kids. And Hugh was a police officer in Vancouver, and truth to tell, I believe Hugh is the reason my three boys are police officers. He was their hero, and he was their model. 
But I remember way, way back having some conversations with you where he said to me, I want you to know that wherever you are, whatever is happening, you can call on me anytime. And I I probably said something like, yeah, good. Yeah, and me too, you can call on me. And he he would look at me and he would say, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly serious about this. And for the rest of our lives, I'm going to keep checking on you. So that was now 35 to 40 years ago. And now still Hugh calls and he asks me simply on the phone, how are you doing? He is a friend who loves at all times. He's a friend who is born for adversity. And many of us have those people in our lives. And in fact, many of us really are those people in one another's lives. So today I'm going to talk about being a faithful friend. Being the kind of person that perhaps doesn't think much of it, but picks up a phone and says, how are you? And turns out to be making that phone call just at the very moment of adversity when you need a friendly voice on the other end of the phone, a caring voice, a voice that sincerely offers to do whatever it takes to help you in your time of adversity. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves says this, and it's a rather long quote, but I think it's worth hearing, so I'll say it slowly. In friendship, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, A few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christians, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discriminating and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves. I want to talk to you today about two incredibly good friends. They are told um, about in the Bible. They are probably the quintessential best friends. They are David and Jonathan. And I'm going to bring you to two passages in 1 Samuel that simply tell out the incredible story of David and Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 5 says this. Now it came about that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to Jacob, to David, and with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. What is this about? We need to catch up a little bit on the events that had happened that um, brought the characters of this story to this place. Um, Here's 
the story of, of David. He is um, a boy, youngest boy in a large family. He's a shepherd boy, a farmer. And uh, to pass the time, perhaps to, to pacify the sheep, he was very musical, and so he played a harp, a lyre. And um, things in the kingdom were somewhat stable, but also there was this troubled king who seemed to have a dark mood side to his life, and his name was Saul. And it came to Saul's attention that there was this, this shepherd boy that was a good musician. And so whatever happened to bring this about, uh, David was brought into the palace, and he was invited to play soothing music in Saul's court. And when a bad mood came upon Saul, Saul would call for David, and Dave, David would play the music, and it would, it would just uh, bring some calm into Saul's life. In the meantime, uh, Saul's son Jonathan, the prince, who grew up in the palace, not in the farmyard, was coming and going and was noticing this young lad, I, I think probably a little younger than he was, um, who came and who played this instrument. And Jonathan became interested in this character and they probably just had times to talk together and uh, get to know each other more and more. And um, in, in, the, in the middle of all of this, uh, David's brothers were out being warriors for Saul. And while that was all going on, uh, David had been sent to bring sandwiches to his brothers one day. And when he got there, there was this giant who was shouting across the valley. I mean, a literal giant. He was calling out Saul's army and saying, who is there that's you know, bold enough to come and challenge me? And David, when he brought the sandwiches to his brothers, would hear this, and he finally asked someone the question, who's this guy, and why is he, why is he mocking the, the army of the living God, Saul's army? And, you know, they said, you know, David, get a hold of yourself. Take a look at the size of this guy. Who's going to fight him? And David said, I will. And they said, oh, goodness me, David. You are full of grandiose notions. Well, David said, I'm perfectly serious about this. And the result of it is, as you know, um, what has become one of the greatest Bible stories, which is David and Goliath, where David with his sling and with some stones took down this incredible giant, the giant Goliath. Well, I don't know where Jonathan was when all of that took place, but it certainly enhanced Jonathan's fascination with his friend, David. And so we're told that this, this friendship grew stronger and stronger. At the same time, um, Saul was so appreciative of David's music that he wouldn't let David go back home to his father, Jesse. He demanded that David stay in the, the palace court. And so there was more reason and more opportunity for Jonathan and David to become friends. And so in the middle of this, here is how the, the storyteller describes their relationship. Now it came about that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house, as they said. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armors, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he prospered. Some of the language in this just editorial comment in the whole thing is very important for us to know. It, it tells us that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and that Jonathan loved him as himself. Um, we want to learn about friendship. Now, now, Jonathan and David, this is what they call a type of far more intricate and beautiful relationships between God and us. Um, and we could go there, or we could learn the on-the-face plain lessons that we should learn about being an incredibly good friend. You need to be an incredibly good friend, and you possibly need an incredibly good friend. When it talks about um, the soul of Jonathan being knit to David's, um, the word has the root, the word breath. It's saying that, that the soul of Jonathan was as close as his breath to the soul of David. The, so, so try to imagine what is the thing that is closest to your face, closest to you. And the, the narrator here is saying that their souls were so together, they were so in harmony, that it was as though one was breath to the other as close as, as the breath from your mouth. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Because of that, in just a little bit, we see that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, the covenant is a very interesting um, model of the ancient Near East, and it was very common. And one of the questions I would ask you is to think about various ways that there is a covenant that's part of the whole story of the Bible. In, in the ancient Near East, a covenant usually was effected between two parties. The one would be the stronger party or the party with more rank or more prestige. That would be the one that initiated the, the covenant. So in this case, Jonathan was clearly the initiator of the covenant. He was a superior party. He had rank. He had um, royalty, and so he was the one who had the opportunity and the recourse uh, to effect a covenant. And when a person established a covenant, um, it, was, it was spelled out fairly carefully in a document. And in the document, there was, first of all, a bit of a description of who the two parties were to the covenant. Then it would talk about what the relationship used to be between the two parties. Usually, they were enemies. It was usually between two warring nations. But um, what their relationship used to be is described. And then what their relationship is to be like now. Um, and so that became the stuff of the terms of the covenant, and there were um, blessings and cursings that were stipulated. So if both parties kept the covenant, then these blessings would accrue to them. If either party broke the covenant, then these curses would accrue to them. And then to make the thing most notable, usually they would take an animal and they would sacrifice the animal, probably burn it. They would literally cut it in half and they would walk through the pieces 
of the animal that has been sacrificed. So the language of covenant in Hebrew is that you cut a covenant, which refers to the cutting of the animal. And the end of the covenant is that both parties will say, may the Lord do so to me and more also if I don't keep the terms of the covenant. Which is to say, as we have just cut this cow in half or this bull in half, may the Lord do the same to me if I don't keep this covenant. That was fairly binding, right? And this was a way that people could express to each other the incredible loyalty to the relationship that they were establishing with each other. And so this friendship between Jonathan and David, um, now initiated more by Jonathan in terms of making it a covenant friendship, became something that was binding in their lives and something that would shape um, everything that would go on in their lives um, severally and apart for many, many years to go. Jonathan then stripped himself of the robe, the armor, the sword, the bow, and the belt. They probably mean something, each one. But the whole point was that Jonathan was saying that whatever was his was now David's. Just as David's enemies now would become his enemies, David's friends would become his friends, Jonathan now was saying, all that I have is yours because of the covenant that we have made with each other. So we're told that as this has happened, the joy of all of this, um, the deepening of the friendship and the covenant between David and Jonathan, um, we're told that as far as Saul was concerned, David was the highest of employees. He was not only a phenomenal musician, but now he's a great warrior. And the stories are told of him going and defeating the Philistines by the hundreds um, and as all of that is going on, and strangely, as Jonathan is becoming more enamored of David, Saul begins to hate him. He begins to hate him because of his jealousy. In fact, when the singers, the, the female singers and dancers of the land would come through the palace, they would sing, well, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul was just incensed by that. Further, he was angered by the fact that his daughter was crazily in love with David. And so he hated David because David wanted Michal to be his wife, or Michal wanted David to be her husband. And so at one point, um, Saul, Saul tried to throw a spear, kills David, um, tried to just mess everything up, and finally said to his general, well, Put him, go have him do this, because I know if I send him to do this, he'll get killed by the Philistines. He just turned around and killed the Philistines. And so the vendetta of Saul against David became really, really palpable. And the next passage that we come to is just a little bit later, and it, it pushes us along to understand how things have so soured between David and Saul, but also what the covenant between Jonathan and David comes to mean. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it says this, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan. So now David is on the run. He knows Saul is out to kill him. He knows Saul hates him, and he wants him dead. So he says to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? 
But truly, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, there's hardly a step between me and death. Jonathan says, you, you have to be kidding. Like, he, he doesn't really want to kill you, does he? Are you sure? And David says, yeah, you can count on it. That's what he's trying to do. And Jonathan says, well, he doesn't do anything without telling me about it, so I'm sure he's, th- he's going to tell me. So let me, let me sort of um, protect you. I'll say that you quickly went back home, and that's why you haven't been at the feast and so on. But I'm going to find out if my father is intending to harm you or not. Well, as it turns out, Jonathan also discovers that Saul is wanting to harm David. And so they... they set up a bit of a test thing about a someone shooting a bow and where the arrow lands and what that means, what's the secret message about that, as Jonathan tries to protect his, his dear friend's life. But here's what's important to us. Um, Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do it for you. If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. That sounds familiar, right? That's the, that's the um, promise of the walking through the parts of the animal. If I do not make it known to you and send you away so that you may go in safety, and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, if I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? Loving kindness is the operative term of covenant. It is the the behavior of covenant. It is the covenant loyalty. So Jonathan is looking on down the road and he says, I don't know what will happen, but if I if I'm still alive, and maybe I won't be, but if I am, will you please honor the covenant? Will you show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I will not die? Pushing that a little bit farther, um, there are some things that just sort of occur to me um, that are the marks of this faithful friendship between Jonathan and David um, that would be good for us to camp on and, and make sure that we, um, we have in our lives and our relationships. Uh, I'll bring you to one last verse that will bring us to um, some, some lessons here. The verse is in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16. It says this, and this is a little bit later on, so the enmity of Saul is still inflamed. Um, David is still running for his life. But it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Literally, it says, strengthened his hand in God. I think that's one of the most beautiful expressions that we could find about friendship. That even though the turmoil is still at its height, here is Jonathan and he goes and he finds David and he does something, he says something, I don't know what it is. But the way it is described is that he strengthened David's hand. Um, whether you have physically experienced this or not, I think you you can grasp um, the sense of a weakened hand and needing your hand to be strengthened. Maybe your hand feels feeble about something. Maybe your hand um, isn't strong enough for something. And just the whole idea that someone would come and would offer something that would strengthen your hand, steady your hand. Maybe it's a, 
a shaky hand that needs another hand on top of it, maybe a younger hand, a stronger hand to, to guide where that hand goes. Maybe you're a child and you can't quite be trusted with a knife and so a steady hand would be your mother's hand putting her hand over yours and strengthening your hand. But whatever it was in the relationship between Jonathan and Saul, it was something that the Lord used to tremendously encourage um, this young man, David, who has for no reason of his own or no fault of his own um, been made an outcast. Four things that I learned about faithful friends, and they are these, and I think they're just clear, obvious from the story of this, this couple of friends. Faithful friends are soul-knit. You know, they're soul-knit. There's something about that relationship. And not all of our friends are soul-knit. Not all of our friends are to be the best friends. Not all of our friends are like the um, Anne of Green Gables kind of friend. Not all of our friends are like the Toy Story, you've got a friend in me. Not everyone's called to that. But I think in all of our lives, there is at least a handful of people who are called to be our good friends, our faithful friends. And there's at least a handful of people for whom we are called to be their faithful friends. And I want you to just stop for a moment and maybe close your eyes and imagine and ask over my life, who have been my faithful friends? Who are the ones that... If there were some calamity came upon me in the middle of the night that I could call, and I wouldn't have to apologize, and they wouldn't hesitate, who are they? And then, even more important than that, to whom am I a faithful friend so that they know that if anything should happen, they could call me, and without any hesitation, I would go and I would be true to the covenant of the um, knitted relationship that has become of the two of us. Over the lifetime, I'm not many sure or not sure how many of those people cross our paths. Maybe for some there are scores. I kind of doubt it. I think for most of us there's a handful of those people that are faithful friends. But in the time of perhaps not knowing what's next, when you're David at Horish and you don't know which angle Saul is going to come from next and what lies will be told next and what strategies will be used against you next, when you have no idea of where to turn and you still are filled with consternation because you don't know why this is happening, then you, you may need someone to strengthen your hand or someone may, may need to be the one um, for whom you strengthen their hand. So faithful friends are soul-knit. Um, faithful friends, secondly, are selfless. Um, David, when he was going through his, his turmoil with Saul, um, had this friend Jonathan who had no thought for himself. He didn't say, well, oh my goodness, I better be careful. Maybe my dad's after me as well. In fact, he was at one point. But when, when he understood the dilemma in which David found himself, he, he didn't think about himself for a second. 
he he said, I, "Look, um, I I don't know what is happening. My dad never does anything without telling me. So I promise you that if he intends to harm you, I will let you know. We will make a way that you can escape, and you'll be fine. Just please remember me. Remember the covenant. If I'm still alive at the end of all of this." The third thing about faithful friends is, is that they're settled. Like they've, they've actually settled the fact that they are friends. So it's not only that there's this sort of, um, I don't know what it is, a mystical feeling or a, um, a, a, a fifth sense or sixth sense that you are to be soulmates. Um, it, it's not only an idea. It's not only a little romantic notion um, but it's something that you have said, and, and because of that, I, I'm not going to live selfishly in this relationship. It won't be for me. Here, everything that I have is yours at your disposal. You can, you can have my, um, my bow, my, my sword, you can have my tunic, you can, have, you can have my boots if you want, you have my car if you want, you can have whatever you need. It, this is a matter of selflessness. I, I've got nothing I would hold out from you. But also, it's a matter that is settled. You probably have needed to have a conversation that says, hey, for the record, and I'm perfectly serious here, if ever you need a friend, I mean, if ever you need a friend, I will be that friend. It doesn't matter where I am or where you are. It doesn't matter how it costs. It doesn't matter what you have done or not done. If ever you need a friend, I am that friend. We are in covenant. Maybe you don't use that language, but you say, I am the one. I am your friend of record. Be sure that you don't ever forget that. And I will check in with you wherever we are, whatever is going on. This is a matter that is settled. And then finally, faithful friends are sacrificial. They are willing to give up for the other person. And Jonathan was willing to give everything up. In fact, Jonathan knew from early on that he was giving up the throne. Wow, how much more than that would you give up for a friend? But he came to love David. He knew that David was chosen by the Lord. He, he knew that God had the destiny of his friend well in mind and in hand. And rather than balk at that, rather than say, this throne is mine, rather than say anything like that, he said to David on more than one occasion, I know that the Lord has chosen you to be king over Israel, over my father. So I offer you my hand, I offer you my blessing, I offer you my support, and I promise you that um, I will stand by you no matter what it is that comes along. So again, that lovely little verse from... First Samuel says that um, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David and encouraged him in God, literally strengthened him in God. And all the way back up to the beginning where we thought about the proverb, a friend loves at all times. So thinking about the friendship between Jonathan and David, Jonathan loved David at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. When the things of David's life were the hardest that they'd ever been. Jonathan essentially showed up and put his hand up and said, I, I'm here, this is why I've come. We have been bound together, 
and we have been bound together for just such a time as this. So this is a difficult time. This is a time when very strangely we're pulling away from one another. But at the very same time, paradoxically, we need to draw incredibly close to one another. There is someone who needs to know that you are a friend who will love at all times. There's someone who really needs to know that you were born for this adversity. Whatever adversity this coronavirus brings, you somehow have been born to step into that in the midst and bring strength to the hand of your friend. A friend loves at all times, and the brother is born for adversity.